So, a few years back, uh, on Christmas Eve, columnist George Will wrote this article. And, And it was entitled, The Happiest Holiday. And he started off this way. He said, a British skeptic of the late 19th century suggested that three words should be carved in stone over all church doors, important if true. George goes on and says, on Christmas Eve, at the end of the rarely stately and always arduous march that Americans make each year to the happiest holiday, it sometimes seems that they are supposed to celebrate Christmas as though they have agreed to forget what it supposedly means. He goes on and says, there's several reasons why forgetting is not altogether unfortunate. First, some people really have forgotten or never knew or never cared about the Christmas's religious dimension, but they can still enjoy and benefit from the seasonal upsurge of non-sectarian goodwill. Second, many Americans are of faiths that assert Christianity is mistaken about what occurred in Palestine 2,000 years ago and in the 33 or so years thereafter. Now I read that and I thought to myself, it's interesting that we have reached a time in our culture where Jesus needs defending at Christmas time. The day that is called Christmas, that Jesus needs defending. I think um, uh, writer Gene Vyth kind of addresses why that's possibly the case. And he said this, he said, American Christianity is conforming to the dominant secular culture. American Christianity has been conforming to the dominant secular culture. He went on to write, it's all right to be religious today according to the dictates of postmodernism as long as your faith exists just in your head. If you start claiming that your beliefs are more than just private mental state that makes you feel good, and you asserting instead that what you believe is objectively real and valid for everyone, he said, if you start to believe that and say that, he said this, then you are an intolerant menace to society. That's the state of modern America, isn't it? And consequently, many Christians have said, I'll keep it a a mental state place. So the British skeptic has a good point when he said we should write over the doors of every church, important if true, important if true. I want those three words to hang in the air for all of us this Christmas season. Because in the modern era, it does appear as if Jesus needs defending, or more to the point for you and I, we just need to be reminded of what it is we really believe. What it is that matters most to us. Now sure, it's easy to sentimentalize Christmas, isn't it? I mean, I totally get that. I'm in fact the first in line to sentimentalize Christmas. It's my, it really is my favorite season of the year. Perhaps because my, my number one love language is gifts. And maybe that's the reason why. I mean, you know, a, a lot of you guys will come up to me after, after a sermon or whatever the case may be and say, oh, pastor, that was a great sermon, blah, blah, blah. You did this, this, this. And I gotta tell you, I'm glad you do that. That's important for you to encourage someone. It's important that you do that. I wasn't meant to be funny, so I don't know how it came out. (laughs) 
But like for me, you're, that encouragement, like words of affirmation aren't my love language. So I'm like, okay, that is great. You know, praise God. And like, it doesn't do anything inside. But if you want to tell me I did a great sermon, give me a gift. <laughs> and someone already beat you to the punch. People already came up afterwards and gave me the empty communion cup. So don't. It's easy to sentimentalize Christmas. But imagine, imagine if we could actually see the birth of Christ as the single most extraordinary event in world history. Of course, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important of all events, but imagine for a season, what if we believed and viewed the birth of Christ as the most astonishing? And imagine what that could do for us this Christmas year, because the reality is this, is that the elements of Christianity, what it is you and I believe, what we hold important, the Christian worldview, if you will, they're all found in the Christmas story. Have you ever thought about that? What's important to us are found in the Christmas story. Can you imagine if you would be willing, and I'm gonna invite you to this this season today as we kind of just kind of lay a foundation for the rest of our messages. I'm gonna invite you to see Jesus' birth in its proper context. And if you could do that, it'll be incredibly relevant for you today and frankly for anybody in our 21st century who think that Christmas is nothing more than eggnog, candy canes, and presents. And so here's what I'm hoping, that over the next couple weeks is we kick off today kind of this broad picture. As we look at the familiar story, I get it, it's Christmas, we know the story. A lot of you are in the story, you were on stage, you know, acting the story out, and so I totally get that. But imagine if we can begin to see Christmas as a key part for all that we hold important, as a key part for what we care about in our faith. I want to invite you to that wonder and awe this season. I think God invites us to it this year. Let's think about some of the astounding claims that different authors wrote about the Christmas season. These authors, they talked about an angel that visited a virgin who then became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. It's astonishing. They talked about this baby in her her womb who was the son of God from heaven. In the Christmas story, we see a non-believing emperor tax the entire Roman world, which sent Mary and Joseph back to their hometown of Bethlehem at the exact moment when Mary was going to give birth. Why did that happen? Because hundreds of years prior, authors, prophets, foretold of a virgin birth that needed to take place in Bethlehem. These authors speak of these magi from the east who traveled and ended up at the very house of Jesus. These authors talk about angels who visited Joseph and and shepherds and then visited the magi later saying, don't go back to Herod, just head home. Imagine this elderly man named Simeon they talk about who held baby Jesus in his arms and he foretold the death and crucifixion of Jesus on a cross. Then in the Christmas story, there's the names that were given to this infant child by the various authors. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called Jesus the Savior, Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. He's called the Son of the Most High, and then he's called Christ the Lord. Man, when you had a baby, did you name your kid that many names? In the Christmas story, the writers tell us of some of the most important accomplishments of Jesus. They say he will save his people from their sins, that he'll reign on David's throne in Jerusalem, and perhaps most remarkable, his kingdom will never end. I mean, think about that for a moment. Kingdoms always come to an end, don't they? World empires always come to, the, to an end. The Portuguese uh, Empire Lino lasted 584 years, and then it ended. The Ottoman Empire lasted 623 years and came to an end. And the longest lasting empire, the, the Roman Empire, lasted 1,480 years, and it came to an end. But not this particular one. This one's different. This infant's kingdom will never end. So, if, it's an if, because I I get it, we know the story. If you and I are willing to pause, to reflect, and truly think about all these claims, man, let that astonish you, because it's remarkable, it's miraculous. The the story of Christmas is actually life-changing and life-transforming. And again, I get it. We'd rather listen to Handel's Messiah than think about what the words actually mean. We'd rather sing the words, Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Glory to the Newborn King by Charles Wesley, rather than think about the implications of what are in the words. And then I think of the song, O Come All Ye Faithful. One of the verses says, true God of true light, light from eternal light, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb, son of the father, begotten, not created. I mean, have you ever given consideration to that last phrase, begotten, not created? To which some of us say, I don't even know what the word means. And yet the reality is it refers, begotten, not created, refers to one of the most crucial, controversial subjects in the history of the Christian church. As the British skeptic said, important if true. Important if true. Now David is going to set for you and I the stage as to why it is so important if it is true. I'm like, if you haven't turned already, turn to Psalm chapter eight. Psalms chapter eight. And David writes in this passage and he essentially asks a question that's going to bring you and I face to face with the reality of Christmas. David's going to ask this, and we're going to start in Psalm chapter 8, and we're going to pick it up in verse 4. David sa- he says this, and he's speaking about God and his relationship to us. He says, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? The son of man, that's another term for us, I know it's a, it's a prophetic term for Jesus, but it's also a term for us, the son of man that you care for him. And then he makes this comment or commentary. He says, you, referring to us, mankind, were made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. In these verses, we see the glory and the tragedy of the human race and why Christmas is actually so important to us we see why it is that Jesus had to come. Why Jesus had to come. 
We see in the passage that we were crowned, notice what it says, with what? What are the two words? What's the first word? Crowned with glory and honor. Now, what does that actually even mean? Well, if you go back to the first book in the Old Testament, in the Genesis, you discover that mankind was created in the image of God, and then the author of Genesis tells us that we were created to rule over the earth, to have dominion over the earth. That is our glory, that is our honor to rule and to reign. That's that's what David essentially goes on and says in verses six through nine in his passage to rule and to reign, but what's our version of glory? Well, it can be all sorts of things. I think one of the things our version of glory and honor is that every four years, the greatest athletes in the world meet at the Olympic Games, right? And and they run and jump and swim and hurdle and wrestle and throw and, and, and dive and lift and spin, and they do all that, and at the end of the day, whoever's the fastest can go the farthest, the highest, the quickest, the longest, they're the ones who win they win the gold medal. And for at least a moment, at least for a day, they are the best in the world. And that's our version of glory and honor. But that glory eventually fades, right? Because as the the familiar phrase goes, records are meant to be broken. Sooner or later, every record is broken. Though some say that Michael Phelps' 23 gold medals will never be broken. Time will tell. Or perhaps our glory, if you will, is found in being rich, being the richest on the planet as Jeff Bezos is with Amazon over 112 billion. We're we're crowned with glory and honor by God. But as we talked about in our last series, sin entered our world through Adam's disobedience to God and so consequently death became our destiny. Sadness invaded the human DNA. Pain moved in, in us and next to us. David said we were crowned, though, for glory, made for glory and honor. He also said in the passage, we were made for greatness. That's what he meant when he said that you look back in the passage that you and I were made a little lower than the angels. We're not angels, but almost And just as some of the angels fell back in Genesis, we discover that we fell. And so we live in a fallen world, what the Bible talks about a sinful world, and it brings tragedy, doesn't it? It brings despair and loss and destruction and disease and sickness and, of course, ultimately death. That's the fallen world we live in. And my heart has been heavy for those who have suffered and lost everything in the recent fires. And I can't help but wonder, maybe you've asked this question before, when somebody has, you know, unspeakable loss, whatever it may be, or or unspeakable tragedy in their life, how does somebody get through that if they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Have you ever wondered that question? How do they get through? Because you and I, we have Jesus and we have life everlasting, but we even struggle in those tri- times of crisis and we have eternal hope. How does somebody get by and get through and survive and even thrive? Uh, Pastor Stan and I up at Hope Christian in Paradise have been communicating you know, these last couple weeks and he sent out an email recently to his entire church and now I'm on those email chains right now. And I love what he said to his church in talking about who we are. 
and how we survive. He said this, he said, I was asked to be interviewed by a Brazilian news team that had seen the picture of the cross still standing after the fire. If you were here a few weeks back, you remember that picture where their church, Hope Christian, was burnt down and yet what remained was the cross. If you were, you were here, you remember seeing that picture. He said this, this is a secular news channel which broadcast to all Portuguese speaking countries. I prayed about it and came to the conclusion that it's an opportunity to put in a word for our belief that in Christ, we always have hope. The news team was able to get on the ridge, and that's kind of where the homes were and where everything is. They were able to get on the ridge. They took us by our home and then by the church facility. I could tell they were really looking at our reaction to make the news juicy. I think they were totally surprised that we didn't fall apart standing at our house that is now ashes. I could see it in the interviewer's eyes when he said, but this is all of your belongings, how do you feel? Standing in the rubble of our house, I told him, it's only stuff. We have each other. My heart hurts for people who lost loved ones. Jesus said, is not life more than clothing? What an incredible response. And that's being broadcast to hundreds, thousands, millions of people <laughs> across the world. Stan went on to write in the email. He said this, he said, talking to his church family, he said, I want you to know that I'm committed to give the rest of my life helping one another rebuild our homes, working together to rebuild our church facility and working together to rebuild our town to show the love and the hope in Jesus. He is not done with us, Hope. Remember, we're building relationships that last forever. We do that by loving God and loving people and we are a testimony that in Christ, we always have hope. That's the message that Jesus brings through the Christmas season. That's the message that God wants to deliver to this sin-cursed, fallen world that we live in, that he wants to bring to people who have no hope. Back to Psalm chapter eight, look at verse four for the rest of the story. He says, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's like David is wondering, God, why do you even give a rip about us? I mean, why would you even give any time or energy to us? I mean, we ruined Eden. Why don't you just hit the delete button on us? Get rid of us. Start over. And you and I might understand that because when we make mistakes or someone around us messes up, we kind of want to do the same. David's question comes to the very heart of Christmas. What is man, God, that you would actually pay attention to us? What is man, God, that you should actually care about us after we failed so miserably? I love how the New King James Version says this verse in verse four. It says this, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Why would God care enough? Why would he care enough to visit us? Why would God come to us? And it's right at this point that we see the glory and the wonder and the mystery of the gospel that begins with this Christmas story. The writer of Hebrews, I'd like you to turn there now, Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews chapter two. The writer of Hebrews thought this topic was so important, he wanted to make sure his readers, you and I, 
would understand the greatness of our salvation and how that ties into the Christmas story. So the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting, and he starts off quoting uh, David in Psalm 8. And then he applies the remainder to that baby that was born in the manger that eventually headed to a cross. Hebrews chapter two, he says this, for in one place the scriptures say, we know what that one place is, Psalm eight, verse four and following. What are mere mortals that you should think about them or the son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while, you made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now notice what he goes on to say. He says, now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. That's our glory and honor. Nothing's left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than angels. That's another way of saying became man. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And see, when I read that and I think about this continuation of the story, the first thing that I see is that Jesus had to become like you and I in our nature. Jesus had to become like us in our nature. That's what's called in theological terms, the incarnation. That Jesus, fully God, became fully man. In other words, that's Bethlehem. That's Christmas. He came into the world as a tiny baby born, you know, in a stable, you know, technically in a cave and in an obscure village, into poverty, unwanted by the world. Nobody cared that he arrived. And I want you to notice I said Jesus had to come. In order to visit us, as Psalm 8, 4 says, he had to become like us. John chapter 1, verse 14, John said it this way. He said that Jesus became flesh, or he became human, and he dwelt, or he lived, or he camped out among us. Christmas is the story of God having to become like us, and then living among us. We also learn from the author of Hebrews that Jesus, then he came to live with us, be a baby, grow, live as a human, but then he would eventually, the author of Hebrews says, taste death. And now why does he have to taste death? Because just like he had to become human to be fully human, he had to taste death because death is the destiny of all humankind. Romans chapter two, verse nine says this in the message translation. It says, he fully experienced death in every person's place. We're all gonna die, aren't we? The only question, or the question is when, and where do you go after you die? But I think about that question when all the time. I'm like, man, if I could know, if there's a genie, and I could know, what I wanna know where I, where, where I, when I would die, the date, and so I'm just curious, just side note, hey, would you be willing to, if someone said, I will tell you the day you're gonna die, would you wanna know that? Okay, good. I was like, who wants to know that? You know, it's like, okay, I got five more minutes. Okay, three more minutes, two more minutes. Jesus could not have truly visited us if he lived. I want you to think about this. If he lived, and then in the story, we jump to Acts chapter one, verse nine. 
In Acts chapter one, verse nine, it talks about how Jesus had come back from the dead and he was with his disciples. And then at the last moment, you know, at the final, final moment of being with his disciples, he shared with them, talked with them. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter chapter one, verse nine, that Jesus then went up into the sky and disappeared in the clouds. Imagine if Jesus had lived and then it was that. And there was no death, no cross, no resurrection. Jesus had to fully experience death because that's the destiny of all humankind. And it was in his death that first Peter tells us that he suffered for our sins. He was an innocent person. He suffered for us guilty people so that he could bring you to God, that his body was put to death. And by that, his spirit was brought to life. Jesus tasted death because that's just the common destiny of all of us. But finally, Jesus came to restore all that was lost in Eden. One of the verses of Hark the Herald Angels Sing calls Jesus the second Adam from above. I think that reflects what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says when it calls Jesus the last Adam. In other words, the reason Jesus came was to reverse that curse that happened back in the garden when we disobeyed God and brought death into the world. Part of the good news is that those who would believe in Jesus, like the Hebrew author says, that Jesus received glory and honor, that we too one day would actually receive and share in that glory and honor, that that is our destiny, no longer death. But that day has not come yet, and that's why the writer of Hebrews says, but we have not yet seen all things put under our authority. G.K. Chesterton said this. He understood that better days are coming. He said, whatever is or is not, else is or is not true, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. We're not what we were meant to be, and it goes all the way back to the garden. And it's precisely at this point that the story of Christmas speaks so clearly for us and to us. God made you and I for glory and honor. But our glory faded a long time through our disobedience. Ultimately, as you think about the history of mankind, we turn to our own devices and say, God, I don't need you at all. Leave us alone. So what did God do? He sent us prophets, but we killed them. He he wrote us letters and we ignored them. He told us how to live. And we said, who are you to tell me what to do? We mocked the God who made us. We broke his laws. We said we didn't need him. And we made up our own gods that we liked better. But God said, I love you too much to let you go. I care about you too much to leave you to yourself. And so he came to the world in a strange way. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? That he, he entered into a virgin's womb and that he came out as a baby born in Bethlehem, born to save us from our sins, born to restore the life we were meant to have. As C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. That's the story of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that God has done it all for us. He's done it all. The only thing left for us to do is believe. Important if true. Important if true. You'll have to decide for yourself. As we dive into this Christmas season, I want to remind you why it is you can believe, why it is important if true that you can say, yes, it's true. 
And here's the reason why. It actually isn't the Christmas story. It actually isn't even, you know what, I just, because I have faith. That's not the reason. The reason is, is because there's Jesus lived, he then died, he was then buried, and then he rose from the grave. And this resurrected Jesus was seen by hundreds of people on multiple occasions. They saw him alive, they saw him died, they saw him placed in the tomb as dead, they then saw him later alive. And so they decided to stake their entire life on this truth, on this fact. And so then that leads you and I, and that led them to say what this person said, I'm going to follow someone who lived and died and rose from the dead. That's who I'm following. And whatever it is he said, that's what I'm going to hold on to. That's what I'm going to cling to. And so because he lived, died, and rose from the dead, you and I can have confidence in the Christmas story and that it is true. Important if true. The resurrection gives us that confidence. At the heart of the Christmas truth is what for you and I? What does it matter for us today? The truth is God's not leaving you alone. He doesn't leave you or I in our misery or in our grief, or in our dark, darkness, or in our tragedy. But he visited us one dark night 2,000 years ago to rescue us, to save us, to have a relationship with us. Why did he come? Because he loves you. 